know, when Christ came, he came preaching the kingdom. John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom. It was all about the kingdom because Christ was the king. And he presented the kingdom in all of its glory and all of its splendor. And yet, Israel rejected their king, so the kingdom was postponed until the millennium. But he still kept preaching the kingdom. And I think it's important to understand exactly what is what we talk about when we talk about the kingdom. It's a it's the word basileia, which means rule or reign. So when you're praying, thy kingdom come, you're praying thy reign or thy rulership come. That's what it means to pray for the kingdom to come. And when you use the word come, as it is in Matthew chapter 6, it's a word that doesn't just kind of ease its way into its arrival, but it deals specifically with a sudden coming. So that would uh, negate post-millennialism, that the kingdom would slowly come to be because we usher in the kingdom. No, that's not the way it is. When you pray thy kingdom come, you're asking for it to come immediately. Now, we know the Lord is a universal king, right? We understand that. The Bible is very clear uh, in the psalmist, in Psalm 103, it says, uh, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. So we know our Lord is a sovereign king. Psalm 24 talks about the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and all that it contains. So we know God is a universal king, but yet the world doesn't recognize him as their king, even though he is. Christ said to Pilate, Pilate asked Christ, are, are you a king? He said, yeah. Did someone tell you that or did you come up that on your own? And uh, because if you're a king, where's your kingdom? Where are your subjects? Pilate didn't have an understanding of the kingdom. When we talk about kingdom, we think of, you know, knights of the round table and, you know, Sir Lancelot and uh, King Arthur and, and all those kind of medieval things that, that took place years ago. And that's what we think of when we think of a kingdom. But, but a kingdom simply just has a king who rules. And our Lord is a universal king. But because the kingdom was postponed, we have to understand the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. Because we are looking at what it means to have God's kingdom in us. Remember Romans 14, 17? The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the fact that the kingdom is spiritual. Remember Paul, in the book of Acts, Paul was, was preaching, and this is what he said in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. In other words, he went preaching the kingdom. That's what he did. Listen, if Christ came preaching the kingdom because he was the king, when we present the gospel, we are presenting the kingdom of God and the king who rules in that kingdom. That's so important to understand that. Yes, he's a savior. Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he's master. But he is a king. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords, and therefore he is to be worshipped as such. And so there is a spiritual kingdom where the Lord takes up residence in our hearts, and he rules his people. We are to preach the kingdom. We're to pursue the kingdom, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We're to pray for God's kingdom to come to earth because it's not here. Yes, it's, it's, it's uh, portrayed through you and me. Because we are subject to a king who rules, and the more we subject ourselves to that king and follow his rules, we do show people that we serve the ultimate king. So there is a universal kingdom where Christ is a king over all. He is sovereign. He rules. We understand that. But there is a spiritual kingdom, but one day there's going to be a literal kingdom. So when you pray thy kingdom come, you are praying for that literal kingdom to come to earth and be, a, be here as, as it was designed to be when Christ came the first time. But, of course, to the sovereignty, they rejected him, and it was postponed. The church age came, but the kingdom is coming. Isaiah chapter 9 says these words. Isaiah 9, verse number 6, you know it well because it's always about Christmas time and what happens at Christmas is the birth of the king. But it says these words in Isaiah 9, verse number 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is going to accomplish the fact that the Messiah, the one who is a son that was given, a child that's born, who is called the mighty God, who is called uh, the everlasting father, the, the, the wonderful counselor, this one will have a kingdom. And he will sit on the throne of his father David, and he will rule and reign. And that's what we call the millennial reign of Christ, the literal 1,000-year reign where Christ will rule on the throne of David from Jerusalem, and the law will go forth from Zion, and all will hear. So we need to understand that there is a universal kingdom. God is a king. But because the whole world doesn't recognize him as such, there is a spiritual kingdom designed for those who give their life to Christ, who understand that there is a king. We submit ourselves to that king, and we are called citizens of the kingdom. Remember, when we're saved, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, Colossians chapter 1, verse number 13. So there's a transference from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear son. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, it's the Lord of hosts who will build his temple and will sit on his throne. So we know there's going to be a fourth temple that the Messiah himself will build. The third temple will be built by the Jewish nation in which they are ushering in their Messiah because they think that the Antichrist is their Messiah. That temple will be destroyed. The Messiah will arrive. He will build the fourth temple, and therefore he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. So when you pray, thy kingdom come, you are praying for people's souls to be saved and asking God to take up residence in people's lives. At the same time, you're asking for God's kingdom to come to earth. We have a hard time praying for God's kingdom because we like building our own kingdom, right? We, we love being the king of our house, and we like making our own rules. So it's hard for us to say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come because I'm too busy building my kingdom. But because it's, your kingdom is supposed to come to earth as it is in heaven, how is God's rulership in heaven? Well, everybody does what God says. All the angels are obedient to our Lord, and they follow him, and they worship him. Well, the cry of the heart is, Lord, come, set up your kingdom, and rule, and reign. Along with that, in the book of Matthew, the 24th chapter, before the great Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, these words are very, very important. The Lord said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Remember, it's no longer called his father's house. It's called your house. Why? Because if it was my father's house, he'd be honored. He'd be glorified. But the glory of the Lord has departed. Your house will be left to you in ruins. And then he says, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He didn't say, unless you say this. He said, until you say this. In other words, there's going to come a time where Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is, they are going to see their king. They're going to recognize Christ as their ultimate king. Until that time, there's going to be a great and terrible tribulation. Also, just to add note to this, over in Matthew chapter 19, uh, really interesting, chapter 19, verse number 28, the Bible says these words. Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? In other words, it's a follow-up to the rich young ruler. And the question that the rich young ruler asked the Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he talked about how hard it would be for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And, and Peter's saying, look, we, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Because that's the, that's the question everybody asks, right? I mean, Peter, James, and John are no different than you and me. There's got to be something in Christianity for me, right? What's in it for me? Christ says this. 
truly I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now think about that. The Lord says to Peter that the apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. When has that ever happened? Has it? When will it happen? There has to be a king. There has to be a kingdom for him to rule and reign in order for that to take place. So what Christ said to the apostles helps you understand that there is a literal kingdom upon the earth. It's not some mystical kingdom. It's not some spiritual kingdom only, although there is a spiritual kingdom today because we live in that kingdom as children of the king. But there is going to be a literal kingdom. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the Lord's kingdom to come. And the Lord made a promise to the the apostles that they will sit on 12 thrones and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. So there we have an understanding that there must be a literal kingdom where Christ is on the throne and the apostles themselves are on 12 thrones overseeing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? All right. Hopefully that answers some of the questions about the kingdom and and what's going to be taking place into the future. Do you have any more questions about that? Anybody want to ask me real quick? No, because we won't get through the rest of the questions. You're right, we won't. I was asked a question about uh, uh, how how do I know children are going to be born in the millennium? Well, because we all have glorified bodies. I said, no, not all going to have glorified bodies. Because there are sheep that go into the kingdom. Matthew 25, the sheep go judgment. The goats, they're the unbelievers. They go into everlasting punishment. But the sheep... They go into the kingdom. And remember that during the tribulation, there will be a multitude of people that are saved. In Revelation 7, we know that there are many who will die because they'll, according to Revelation 20, be beheaded because of the faith and the testimony of our Lord. But others will make it through the kingdom. For instance, 144,000 Jews. We talked about them last week. They're going to make it through because in Revelation 14, they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. So we know that at least 144,000 Jews who are not glorified, that is, they don't have glorified bodies, they haven't died, they've been resurrected, are going to go into the kingdom. That's 12,000 from every tribe. We also know that other Jews are going to get saved because there's a whole multitude of them in Revelation 12 that flee to the wilderness. But we also know that during the tribulation, Gentiles will be saved. And so you have Jews and Gentiles saved during the tribulational period. They are the sheep that go into the kingdom. So you have Jews and Gentiles that enter the kingdom. We will be there with glorified bodies because we come back in Revelation 20, Revelation 19, with our Lord. We're dressed in white raiment. We come back with him, and we will rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. But all those Jews and Gentiles will go into the kingdom without glorified bodies and they will get married, they'll procreate and have children. And there'll be no infant death during the millennial kingdom. Because everybody, according to Isaiah 65, lives to be at least 100 years old. There are no infant deaths in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 65 tells us that they live to be 100. Now, they have 100 years to get saved. If they don't, they're accursed. They have 100 years to accept the one on the throne in Jerusalem as their Messiah. If not, they're accursed. But there will be those Jews and Gentiles who have children. Those children are born just like children today. Nothing mystical about the millennial kingdom and how children are born. We had them the same way then that we're going to have them now, okay? And yet they're going to be born with a, not yet, but they are still going to be born depraved, separated from God. They must hear the gospel. They must understand the gospel. They must believe the gospel. 
Now, I was asked a question. That it's one of the questions I'll get to in a minute. But the fact of the matter is, is that will there be uh, the feasts that are celebrated in the millennium? The answer is yes. But the feasts are celebrated, okay? Passover will be celebrated in the millennium. But it's a, it's a celebration not of the exodus. It's a celebration of the cross, the celebration of the feasts during the millennium are all looking back on everything that Christ did so that those people during the millennial reign of Christ will begin to understand how everything unfolded from the very beginning, from the birth of a nation to uh, the exodus to everything that took place in the Old Testament to the coming of the Messiah, the cross. They're going to see how everything pointed to the cross and how the Messiah died and rose again because he's on the Father's throne. He'll still have his nail-pierced hands, all those things. But not everybody's going to get saved. Some will still not believe. But they will celebrate the feasts. And what our Lord said in, I think it's Luke 23, about the fruit of the vine, that at the last Passover, I am not going to partake of this with you again until the fruit of the vine in the kingdom. In other words, there's going to be a celebration of the Passover and the blessing and joy. The fruit of the vine is symbolism, symbolism of, the, of the blessing and joy that comes to the Jewish people. There's going to be great joy in that kingdom, and that's when we'll celebrate it together. So Christ is given in the promise that there's going to be a kingdom. It's going to be a literal kingdom. And they're going to partake of the Lord's table with the Messiah himself in that kingdom, celebrating the feasts of all that pointed to the Messiah. Very important. Okay? So hopefully that answers your question. Somebody also asked a question about infant deaths. That's a great question, right? Do, did all the people, all the children who died in the flood go to heaven? The answer to that is yes. Do all children who die go to heaven? The answer to that is yes. How do we know that? Well, I won't spend a lot of time answering the question, but if you want to read a good book, uh, MacArthur's book on safe in the arms of God is one of the great books that describe that for you so you begin to understand how children who die in infancy go to heaven. People always talk about the age of accountability, right? What is the age of accountability? Uh, I'm not sure we could ever know that. Only God knows that. But the age of accountability is the age by which someone is able to comprehend and understand. Now, we know that disabled children, according to the book of, of Jonah, that there were disabled ones in Nineveh, those who didn't know their right hand from the left hand. Okay? In other words, they weren't able to comprehend what you and I normally comprehend. They are ones who, who go to heaven. The Bible says in the book of uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, children are called my children. God calls them my children. Those children that have been sacrificed on altars, they're called my children. He also says in um, Jeremiah 2.34 and Jeremiah 19.4 that these children are the innocent. So children born are innocent. That is... They're not sinless because they are sinful, but they are innocent. In other words, they don't willfully rebel against Christ and his authority. They're not the ones who uh, uh, predetermine their own sinful decisions in advance. They are children. And the child, that's why Christ said, suffer not the children to come unto me. Let them come. That's why Job, Job said these words. Uh, Job, I believe it is three. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, it's Job three. Job says this about, you know, you know, Job, Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. Remember that? Job chapter one. He was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. He was, he had great theology, Job did. So Job understood the Lord. He led his family in the ways of the Lord. But Job says this in Job 3, verse 11, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not die at birth? Good, good question. He's suffering tremendously. He's lost everything. He's lost his physical health. He's lost his children. He's lost his home. He's lost everything. 
Well, why didn't I die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. When I was born, why didn't I die? Why did the knees receive me? And why the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. So Job, the man who was the most righteous man on the earth, through the inspiration of Scripture, is talking about dying in infancy, dying as a newborn, because there would be quietness. There would be rest. Speaking of the fact that there would be no turmoil. People say, well, how can someone get saved if they're an infant? Well, they can't, right? So how does an infant go to heaven Automatically. Does that mean that every infant that dies, every child that dies, is elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Well, the answer would be yes. Listen, salvation's always by, by grace, right? The, nobody in the room deserves heaven, right? Nobody here deserves heaven. Nothing you do is going to get you to heaven. The best example of that is a child. A child can't do any work to get them to heaven, can't do anything that's good that's going to get them there, Right? And they don't deserve heaven. But because of God's grace, they get heaven. They get heaven because of the atonement. The, the death that Christ died for their sins. How do, how do you and I get saved? The cross of Christ. He died for our sins, right? But we have the ability to, to understand those things. Children can't suppress the truth. We can. Children don't walk away from the truth. We do. Now, what that age of accountability is, no one knows. Only God knows that. But yet, a child who dies, whether it's in the flood in Noah's day, or a child who dies in the Twin Towers in 9-11, when they went down, or whether someone dies today, that child I believe, goes to heaven. That's why David said in, in 2 Samuel, uh, I will not go, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. So he talks about the fact that he will see his son in heaven, although he died in infancy. So those are just some, some verses that will help you understand that. I think that if you read MacArthur's book, uh, Safe in the Arms of God, it'll make it very clear to you. It's not a hard read. It's a very easy read. It's very simple to understand. So uh, that's a good book to read to get an understanding in terms of what the Bible says concerning children who die and whether or not they truly go to heaven or not. I do believe they do. So, uh, but John says it a lot better than I do. So read the book. Uh, the next question deals with what we've been talking about, which I need to answer because it was a good question. And I'm not sure I necessarily understand the question, but I understand the verse and the chapters. Okay? So the question is this, is Romans 13 prescriptive or descriptive with regards to human government? Okay? So I think that prescriptive means a, a prescription, a rule of law, versus description describing what happens in government. So let me explain that to you. I think it's very important because that, that has been the key, uh, what's the... What's the the cornerstone of churches all around the world as to what they do. They think that Romans 13 is absolute. So because Romans 13 is absolute, we got to do everything the governor says, everything the president says, okay? So that's how they take Romans 13. Well, the only way you could ever do that is if, is if you have a perfect sinless governor, which we don't. That's obvious, right? Or president, which we don't or never have. And so, uh, unless you understand those things, so let's, let's look at Romans 13 again because I think it's important to understand this because you have friends who look at this verse and they, they look at it differently than you do. But this verse alone 
should have been something that was a cornerstone in all churches throughout the centuries. But it hasn't been. And how people miss the obvious is unbeknownst to me. So the Bible says this. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, we understand that, right? There is no authority that exists that is not established by God. God does that. Okay? Joe Biden is our president. Not because of any other reason than God put him there. Donald Trump was our president. Because God put him there. Governor Newsom is our governor until he's recalled in November. <laughs> uh, but, but he's there, right? Because God put him there. So uh, God puts him there. God puts the Queen of England in her, her position. He puts people in authority in those positions. God establishes them. God puts them there, which is very important. Because they, governors, Mayors, presidents, kings, and queens are all subject to the God who put them there. Now, they might not recognize that, but they are. And the only ones that are going to show them that is us, the church. Who else is going to show them? Who else is going to tell them? Remember, Israel was designed to, to lead the nations of the world to the living God. That's their job. But, but they got Canaanized. We are culturized. They, they were Canaanized. They, they became so familiar with, with people in the land of Canaan that they could not represent their God to them so they could see that the God of Israel was the true and living God. Because they became so ingrained. If you, if you mirror the world, you cannot minister to the world. The church has to stop mirroring the world. The church is looking to have music like the world, have church like the world, because they want the world to come to church. The church is not designed for the world. The church is designed for the body of Christ to come together to praise God and to honor him. When you minimize the worship of your God and minimize the message that you want to preach because you want the world to come, you will dilute everything. And they're going to miss the God you're trying to represent and try to put on display. So you can't minister to the world if you mirror the world. If you look like the world, if you act like the world, if you speak like the world, if you sing like the world, if you do everything you do like the world, how are you going to reach them? You can't because you look just like them. So the difference is that we have a king that we serve. So you know, when the church gathers together, we, we gather together not to make a statement. We gather together to manifest the Savior. See the difference there? We're not in here tonight to make a statement to West Covina. We don't gather on Sunday mornings to make a statement to the community. We gather to manifest the Savior. That's why we're here. That's why we gather together. Because the church, as it gathers together, like I told you on Sunday, is, is the greatest manifestation of the person and work of the Messiah. That's why, as individuals, we can go to the world. We can preach the gospel. We can tell people about who Christ is. But our greatest manifestation of Christ is when we gather together as one. One of the questions I have is, is what's going to happen if, if the church is locked up? I, I have no idea. I don't think the church is going to get locked up. It might. Uh, but what are we going to do? I, again, I have no idea. If that happens, it happens. Okay? But meeting in small little groups is not the answer. That's what everybody tells you right now. All these big churches, these mega churches, well, we're just going to meet in little small groups all around the community, and that's church. That's not church. Those are small groups, but it's not church. 
Church is meant to gather as an assembly, as a body gathers together. So if they lock us down on the outside, we can always meet on the, on the outside, right? If they lock us down in this vicinity or facility, we can move to another facility. So we're still going to gather together no matter where it is, somewhere, somehow, if they lock the doors of the church. I don't think it's going to happen this week. It might happen next week, but I don't think it's going to happen this week. And so we need to realize that, that we are manifesting Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I think that as you understand Romans chapter 13, it goes on and says this. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, that they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Okay, so if you are behaving good, there's no fear. If you're behaving in an evil manner, there's reason to fear. Because you're transgressing not just the laws of the land, but the laws of God. Now read on. It says this. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. But see, that's not the way it is today. You can do what is good. But you're not going to have praise for doing what's good. You can do what is right. But in today's culture, you're not going to be praised for doing what's right. You're going to be vilified for doing that which is right. You might even be sent to jail for doing that which is right. Then read, read on. It says this. It says, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Who is the minister of God for good? Well, those who are in authority over you. Who defines what is good? God does. The world doesn't. God does. The world doesn't define love. God does. The world doesn't define mercy. God does. The world doesn't define good. God does. So if you are following God's law, because he is the God who is good, who does good, and he gives us his word, Hebrews 6, 5, which is called the good word of God. So because you had this good word, if you follow that good word, you should be you should be praised for that by civil authorities. Why? Because the civil authorities are following a God who is good. But if they don't follow a God who is good, and they, and they, they arrest you for doing good, or they vilify you for doing good, then what? Then what happens? You see, we become... We become the conscience of the governor. We become the conscience of the president. We are the conscience of a governing authority because we are to live the righteous life of Christ. And there is no government that has sovereign authority over the world. Only the king has that, King Jesus. He's the only one who has absolute rulership. And so because we submit to him and follow him, we are a voice of God to the governing authorities as to how far they can actually overreach. I've used the illustration before. You have, you have a family. Okay, I can't go into your house and, and tell you to put your shoes on. I have no authority to do that. Now, I might think I do, but I don't, right? Because as a father, as a husband, that's your responsibility. That's not my responsibility. I can't tell you to do the dishes. Now, some of you might want to do a better job of doing your dishes, but I can't tell you to do that. You do your own dishes. I can't walk into your house and tell you to tie your shoes, put your shoes on, do your laundry, clean your house. Can't do that because I've overreached my authority because that's fear is an authority which God has designed the father to rule and the mother to rule, not the church, and certainly not the governor or the mayor or civil authorities. But if there's sin in the house, there's a violation of God's word, then the church has authority to step in and work alongside that family to help them overcome that sin. 
We have the authority to do that because that becomes a spiritual authority. And we have a responsibility to do that. And so when it comes to the church, there isn't anybody on the outside that can tell us how to practice our faith and to live our faith. So when they say, well, you, you, you can gather together, but you can't sing, that's an overreach. They can't do that. They can't tell you how to worship. We are designed to be singers. We are designed to give praise to God. You can get together, but you can't sing. They've overreached. They can't do that. You can get together, but you have to do this. You have to do that. They, they can't do that. They have overreached their authority. Why? Because they're subject to the same God you and I are. They're subject to the same revelation that you and I are. But if we decide to follow what the governor says instead of what God says, we've dishonored God to obey the governor and we've blasphemed the name of God. See, Christians don't understand that. They, they've got to get that. You cannot blaspheme the name of God to follow the law of the land. You're to follow the law of the Lord only. That's it. And if it goes against the law of the land, so be it. We think, well, it only pertains to preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 5. Well, you know, if we've got to preach, we've got to preach. You can't stop us from preaching the gospel. We just minimize what the gospel is. The gospel is not, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The gospel is transformational. It transforms the life. The gospel has everything to do with your life and practice. Everything to do with your doctrine and your duty. Your, your Christian life affects everything you are and everything you do. Because if it doesn't, then you probably don't know Christ. Because of Christ in you, it affects my conversation. It affects my conduct. It affects the way I go to work. It affects, it affects what I say at work. It affects how I, how I live and how I, how I rule in my family and love my wife and love my kids. It affects everything I do. So therefore, I must obey what God's Word says. The gospel is transformational. It transforms every area of my life. And therefore, I am commanded to follow what God's Word says. It goes on in Romans 13 to say, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. And rightly so, you should be, you should be afraid. If you do what is evil, you should be afraid. If you throw chairs into department stores and rob stores, you should fear, right? But they don't fear today. Why? Why don't they fear? Because no one does anything. See? And so... If you do what is evil, you need to be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is the minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So if you practice evil, there should be a governing authority who wields a sword and passes judgment on your sinful behavior. Why? Because they follow God's law. They follow the rule of law. They're accountable on the day of judgment not for how they won the election, but how they followed God's word as an elected official. That's the standard. They have to follow God's word, just like you and I do. And so they're held accountable individually as well as publicly because they are to execute the office as if Christ was executing the office. And when they don't, you are under no obligation to do what they say. None. Because they've overstepped their bounds and they've lived sinfully. And you are accountable to a higher authority, the Lord of the universe. It doesn't mean that you riot. It doesn't mean that you stampede. It doesn't mean that you do all these things that you, you, you raise a ruckus. That's, that's not what you do. You live peaceably with all men. But you say very gently, you know, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I respect you and what you're saying, but I, I can't do that. I must follow what my Lord says. When the health department called and said, well, you have to do this, I said, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't have to do anything you tell me to do if it goes outside the realm of God's law. But you have to, you have to obey for health reasons. I said, look, I'm not trying to kill anybody. I'm not trying to put anybody's health in jeopardy. The church doesn't want to do that. We don't make people come to church and, and, then, and then breathe on everybody and cough on everybody and make them sick. We don't do that. 
If they want to come, they come. If they want to be here, they're here. We're not making them come. And they can do it. If they want to come, they want to wear a mask, that's fine. But I can't make them wear a mask. Oh, but you have to because that's the law. I said, no, man, it's not the law. It might be a mandate that you prescribed, but it's not the law because it hasn't passed through the legislation of our country in order for a law to be enacted. It's not a law. It's just a mandate, which, by the way, your governor said and my governor said he cannot make us wear masks. I have it on tape. I can play it for you if you'd like me to. He says, I have no authority to make you wear a mask, and I have no authority to make you social distance like I have no authority to make you wash your hands. So we said, because he doesn't. And, and just because, you see, people say, well, you're defying the governor. No, no, no. The governor has already defied the Constitution he has sworn to uphold. Once the governor takes office, once the president takes office, there is a Constitution you swear to uphold. And once you don't do that, okay, you've defied that, You've lived in rebellion to the Constitution you've sworn to uphold. And that's a violation. You can't do that. But who's going to help them understand those things? That's what we do. We live in submission to those things. We live in submission to the, to the God of the world. And that now becomes our greatest testimony. That's why this is a revelation, not a revolution. That's why we don't mirror society, we minister to society, and we minister to them because we don't look anything like them, we don't act like anything like they do, we don't do what they do, we are, complete. we are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Do we understand that? Do we know that we are aliens? What's an alien? An alien is a creepy looking creature. That's what we are. We are aliens in a foreign land. This is not our home. We have a home. This is not it. We are just passing through. But as aliens, we have a responsibility to live in submission to the king who rules as king in our hearts. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for God to answer those prayers, that his kingdom would come and rule on this earth. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Uh, I've already preached on this on several occasions. But uh, you can go back and listen to uh, a sermon I did back in September um, uh, dealing with this issue. But I think that it's important to understand Romans chapter 13 and our responsibility to the governing authorities. doesn't mean we drive 95 miles an hour down the road. doesn't mean we do that. Okay? But we do follow what God's Word says. That, that's why we told you, remember we told you before that, you know, the laws that are in operation. We, we need to know the law of God is not silent on these issues. We need to understand that. God's word is relevant. God's word is clear. And God's word deals with everything. So God's word is not silent on this issue. That's why we can honestly say with a clean conscience that, look, when you locked down the nation, you violated the word of God. Because for 6,000 years, you never did that. Why? Because God said in the book of Leviticus chapter 13, Leviticus chapter 14, don't do that. You only lock down those who are sick. Remember a couple of weeks ago? Maybe a couple of months ago now. I told you, why did they do that? You couldn't lock down the healthy. Why? Because every day they had to do what? They had to go out and collect what? Manna. Every day. Every day, except for on Friday, they could collect it for two days, Friday and Saturday. God made a special manna for Saturday that would last overnight to the next day, and you could eat it the next day because that was the Sabbath. But every day you had to go to work. You had to go out and collect the manna. You couldn't collect it and add it up and store it up for four or five or six or ten or twelve days or, or weeks. It only lasts 24 hours. Then it wasn't, wasn't any good. So if you quarantine the healthy, guess what? There's no manna to collect. The healthy people get sick and the healthy people die. So God says you quarantine only the sick so the healthy can do what they are responsible to do. We locked down a nation and those people couldn't go to work. 
and they couldn't make money, and they couldn't buy food for their families. That is an injustice to our nation, and we are to do justly. We're to love mercy. We're to walk humbly with our God. We are to fight for justice and righteousness because we serve a just and righteous God, and what they did was so unrighteous. It was so unjust because people lost their jobs. Families lost everything because of an unjust, unrighteous lockdown that destroyed people's lives. They violated the word of God. And when they did that, half a million people died. Maybe if they would have never done that, half a million people wouldn't have died. Maybe that's God's judgment on a nation that disobeys the word of the Lord. Do you ever think about that? Maybe God's judging the nation because as a nation we disobeyed a basic biblical principle that is so important. But we, we become, the, we become the messengers. Not me. All of us. We become the picture of Christ. So we, that's why we gather together and meet, even though they say you can't. Or they say you're going to have so many people in your auditorium. We just get as many as we can. We wish we had more. That's all we got. So we just take what we can. We beg people to come, you know. And, and we, just, we just meet together and we just worship the Lord and honor him. And that's what we'll continue to do because that's what God said we must do. Oh, by the way, I've got to share this with you. And I've got to face these questions because I, I don't have next week because next week's Passion Week and we've got Great Friday service. Remember the book of Proverbs? Listen to this. Proverbs 3, verse number 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Hmm. Keep my commandments. All right? Don't forget my teaching because they will add years to your life. Now listen to this, verse 8. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Do you know? Do you know that when you obey the word of God, there is a particular blessing that allows you to live healthy? Did you know that? Remember David in Psalm 51? He's the perfect example of a man who lived in sin and experienced health problems. Psalm 51, or Psalm 32 first. Psalm 32 says this. He's talking about having his sins forgiven. But he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of a summer. He was affected physically because he disobeyed the law of God. He had sinned against his God. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the nation. And he had violated the law of God. And God's hand was heavy upon him, so much so his energy was completely drained. His body was wasting away. Over in Psalm 51, this is what he says. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse number 8. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. David admits he had major health problems because he disobeyed the law of God. Now, that doesn't mean that if you follow God's word and you obey it and memorize it, that you're going to live a healthy, long life. Although... That is said in the scripture in Proverbs 3 and in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. There's something about obeying the law of God that brings health to your bones. And yet if you, if you disobey the law, so here's, here's the point, okay? Here's the point. You have people that will disobey the law of God to stay healthy. They won't come to church for fear of getting sick, they want to stay healthy. When if they did what God said, they'd be healthy anyway. See? 
How, how do you get people to understand those things? Now, it doesn't mean that people don't get sick and die. They do, okay? But this is a statement that we have to understand. Think of people that you know that have been sick and have been obedient to the law of God. You know, 1 Corinthians 11 says, look, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you're going to drink judgment and eat judgment upon yourself. Many among you are sick, and some have died, 1 Corinthians 11, right? How did they get sick? They disobeyed the law of God. They did what they wanted to do. Some of them even died because they disobeyed the law of God. They didn't partake of the Lord's Supper in the right way. And it's just the Lord's table. It's not like it's some kind of big deal, but it is a big deal. It's remembering the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a big deal. So make sure you do it the right way. If you do it the wrong way, you could get sick and die. Make sure you examine yourself, judge yourself. Make sure you deal with the sin in your life so you're not eating and partaking of something in an unworthy manner because you hold bitterness in your heart towards somebody else who offended you when God has forgiven you so much. Be careful. It could cause you to get sick and die. It's a warning. Like Ananias and Sapphira. They came to church and lied about how much they sold their land for, the proceeds they gave to the church, and they died. Right in church, they fell right over. Boom, dead. Just like that. Now, it doesn't mean that every time you come to church, you lie, you die, right? If that was the case, we'd all be dead, right? So God doesn't do that. That's the mercy and grace of God. Because I'm sure that you've lied in church some way, somehow, right, over the years that you've been saved. But why did he kill Ananias and Sapphira? Because he had to send a message that the church must remain pure and holy. You cannot dishonor God and represent God at the same time. You have to honor God. So God gives this warning. Sends it out. Be careful. Live pure and holy lives. I tell you that because it's very important. So as a church... How can we disobey what God says in his word about assembling together, worshiping together, honoring God together, and expect him to bless our lives if we live in disobedience to his word? How can we do that? You can't. You want God to bless your efforts because you're living in obedience to his word. You want to serve him and honor him. That's very important. So anyway, I thought I'd throw that out, throw that out at you. And if we, if, we get, if we go to jail, we, jail uh, we go to jail. If they lock us down, they lock us down. That's one of the questions I had. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse number 12. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We don't know what we're going to do. We just have to trust the Lord and see what happens. But we're not afraid. We're not scared. It doesn't, work, doesn't bother us. We don't stay awake at night wondering what's going to happen if they close our doors. That's just something we don't do. We just kind of just trust the Lord to do what he's going to do and follow him. That's it. Okay, so let me go through this real quick. All right. My Catholic family and friends, will they be saved? Well, the answer is they'll be saved if they understand who Christ is and what he's done. Very important to understand this. When a witness to your Catholic friends, preach the kingdom. Portray the kingdom because you need to live as a citizen of that kingdom. But Catholicism teaches you several things that are not biblical. And so you have to be able to understand what those things are. They, they teach that Mary is sinless, but she's not. She was sinful, Luke 1, So we know that she, she sins. They said that she, she was ascended up into glory. She never died. That's not true either. She did die because she was a sinner. They say that she is a, a co-redemptrix with Christ. She's involved in the redemption process. She is not. She's a co-mediator with Christ. She's not. She's called the queen of heaven because Jesus is the king of heaven, right? So there's, there's some big errors there you've got you to be able to point out to people in a loving, kind, straightforward manner. But the work of baptism and penance and the work of, of, of um, uh, the, the mass and doing all those things, to earn your way, the, they'll say you can be saved by grace through faith after it is all that you yourself can do. But there is no purgatory. There, there is no assurance of heaven in, in Catholicism. There's no assurance of eternal life in Catholicism. But in Christianity, there is because we know what the Bible says. So it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, Titus 3.5. It's by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the spirit that someone's saved. 
right? For by grace you say through faith and not yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. God grants us the gift. So when you're talking to your Catholic friends, you have to really bring them in touch with what the word of the Lord says. Show them in Scripture what the Bible says. Let them read what the Bible says. And always ask them, if you die today, will you go to heaven? How do you know that? They say no. Say, can I show you how you can know for certain? Because in Christianity, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So we know that. And if they say yes, just ask them a question. If you stood before the Lord and he said, what should I do? Or why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And how they answer that question will tell you whether or not it's a works-based system they're living by or truly a grace system that they have adopted. Okay. Another question about that deal, dealt with uh, uh, how was it that believers received their rewards? They received their rewards at the beam of seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, and they received their own, uh, the crown of life. Or literally, it's the crown which is life, the crown which is righteousness, the crown which is joy, the crown which is imperishable, and the crown which is glory. Okay? So, do you receive a crown? Answer, yes. But the crown is symbolic of the life you receive. In heaven, there's complete joy. It's the crown of joy. It's the crown which is joy. Complete righteousness, it's the crown which is righteousness. Complete glory, it's the crown which is glory. And there are five of those crowns mentioned in Scripture that you receive. Revelation 4, you cast them at the feet of the throne of God because you're there because of his joy, the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame. You're there because of his righteousness. You've been clothed in his righteousness. You're there because of his life. That's why he had the crown of life. You're there because of him. You have an imperishable crown because he is an eternal God. And so you worship him because of that. Next one deals with how should a husband uh, discern, how should a husband discern balance between serving, volunteering, and spending time with his family? Great question, uh, because it's always a question you got to ask. But remember this, you serve God, and you serve your family, and as you do, you're modeling to your family what it means to serve the true and living God. So as you serve in the church, as you volunteer in the church, you are doing this to honor the Lord, but you're exercising your gifts so you model to your children exactly how they exercise their gifts. The church must be not just a part of your life. The church is your life. The problem is we don't recognize that till we get to 60, 70, and 80 years of age. When we're 20 and 30 and 40, we got other things we got to do, right? The church is your life because it's the body of Christ. It's the Mark 3, 35. Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? But those who obey my commands. The spiritual relationships are so important more than you can ever begin to realize. This is my family. You are my family. I am your family. We're all part of the body of Christ, and we function together. So as a father, I want to ask the Lord for discernment because Proverbs 2, verse 7 says that wisdom comes from the mouth of the Lord, right? And I need to be discerning in my decision-making process. So I need to go to the Word of God, see what God says, that I might obey Him and follow Him. But I don't want to stop serving in the church. I want to continue to serve my family, spend time with my family, but model to my family the importance of church life and how much it's valuable to us as a family. Much more I can say about that, but my time is fleeting. Um, next question dealt with Leviticus 12 about uh, a, a woman after childbirth is unclean and she has to be cleansed. If a woman had a boy... She was unclean for 40 days. She had a girl. She was unclean for 80 days. Okay? Did you know that? If you have a boy, you're unclean for 40 days. If you have a girl, you're unclean for 80 days. Why? I have no idea. Bob, I didn't tell you. I have no idea. But it, 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 remember, ceremonial cleansing always a, was a foretest, foretaste of the ultimate cleansing that Christ would bring, Right? We need to understand that. That cleansing comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
You go to Israel today, there's all, all these mikvahs where they would, they would go down, they come back up the other side because they had to cleanse themselves ceremonially because they were always anticipating the great cleansing of Ezekiel 36 where I will sprinkle clean water on you and they will finally one day be completely clean. And so uh, when Mary brought the Lord to um, the temple and Simeon took him in his arms, it was after her purification after the 40 days, they came to bring two turtle doves because they were poor. That's how you know that the wise men did not come within the first 40 days or they weren't at the, the grotto because they would have had gold, right? So if they had gold, they wouldn't have to offer turtle doves. They could have offered a lamb, but they didn't have the gold because they would come later, the wise men did. And so they would come and offer the sacrifice because of the purification. Okay, and then it goes on to ask about uh, the Gospel of Mark. Why is it Mark wrote it and not one of the apostles? Uh, I don't have an answer for that except that's why the Lord designed it. And so that's what happened. Mark was not an apostle, but he was a friend, a close associate of an apostle, and that was Peter. And so God used Mark, John Mark, to do that. John Mark did travel with the apostle Paul and Silas on the first missionary journey. There was that big uproar between Silas and uh, between uh, Barnabas and, uh, and Paul because Paul didn't want to take John Mark with him. Why? I don't know. But uh, they ended up splitting off, and Barnabas took John Mark with him. And at the end of Paul's ministry, he asked that John Mark would come to him because he was needful to, to him in the ministry. But uh, John Mark, because he was a close associate, associate of Peter, uh, would write the gospel of Mark based on Peter's life. And, of course, it was under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Question was asked about John, uh, I'll just give me two minutes. Can you give me two minutes, three minutes? Okay. Uh, the question was asked about John came baptizing, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The question is, is there any efficacy in John's baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins? If not, what is the purpose of doing that? John was coming and presenting the kingdom, right? So he came and presented a baptism that would come as a result of the forgiveness of sins. And the baptism he was calling the Jewish people to was a baptism that only Gentile proselytes did. And so that's why everybody was coming down from Jerusalem to be baptized by this guy, John. They didn't want to mess, miss out on the messianic promises. So they came down to be baptized. But John's whole commission was, look, you've got to understand this, that why are you coming here? Unless you believe that the king is coming and the kingdom is upon you. Because, because he came preaching about the kingdom of God. But he preached because he wanted them to understand they needed to forsake their sin. They needed to forsake their sin and receive God's forgiveness. When you do that, you're baptized. And that's why we baptize people who are, who are born again, because it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The question, again, was asked about Levit Leviticus 8 and uh, water cleansing. Uh, yes, it did begin with the nation of Israel and their cleansing, and God used that ceremonial, ceremonially to portray the ultimate cleansing that would, would come. And during Jesus' ministry, were Jewish people still practicing Old Testament sacrificial offerings? The answer is yes, they were. In fact, Christ came to fulfill all of the law, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill all of the law. Another question dealt with heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What is Jesus referring to when he says my words? He's referring to everything that he said. He is the eternal God. The words that he, speak, that he speaks are eternal words. The word incarnate, the word inspired is eternal, and therefore it lasts forever. His words are faithful and true. The Bible says that he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The question is, does God allow Satan to rule on earth temporarily? And can you say that God is showing grace to Satan as well? Well, yes, because Satan is not getting what he ultimately deserves. That's the lake of fire. He's going to get that, but he hasn't gotten it yet. It's coming. So there is a sense in which God does bestow grace upon Satan as he allows Satan to be the prince and power of the air, to let the whole world lie in the lap of the evil one. Isaiah 9, 6, the question was about during the millennium when the government will be on his shoulders. Is that going to be a monarchy? It's going to be a dictatorship, okay, a theocracy. Christ will rule as a dictator. Dictatorship is the best form of government as long as your dictator is completely and wholly righteous, right? 
dictatorial, dictatorship is, is wrong because of sin. But if you have a perfect ruler who never sins, Christ, then dictatorship is the best way to rule. And it will be a dictatorial leadership. It will be a theocracy. The God of heaven will rule from Jerusalem. Okay? And, and during the millennial period, I answered this question earlier about um, what, will, what will the sacrificial offerings be in the millennium. Yes, they will be here. Yes, they will be instituted. Yes, Christ will oversee them. Yes, Christ will be the perfect picture of all those things as he is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Those are all my questions. I got them all. Seven minutes late. I was going to open up for questions in case, in case you guys had questions, but <clears throat> sorry, time's up. So, but anyway, I thank you for coming. Hopefully you'll be here this Sunday as we continue part two on one year later. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for tonight, a chance to be together. Thank you for your word that explains everything we need to know that will help us live for your glory. Give us all safety as we travel. In Jesus' name, amen.